Yep. Well, welcome to Rational Radio on a cracking day for people who are looking for bargains. My goodness, the JSE today, the Sassel shares as we speak down 45%. And that's a opportunity to bring in David Shapiro. But before we do that, just to introduce our two studio guests for this first half hour, uh, George Maniere is the biggest shareholder and uh, is it acting CEO at the moment of Exponent? Yes, that's correct. Okay, and Exponent's been in the news quite a lot lately. Uh, a negative 10 bagger gone from 65 cents in mid-2018 to 4 cents now. One of your big critics is going to pose a few questions to us. We won't, we won't let him debate you, but uh, we'll let him, let him go forward and, and, uh, and then answer your, yeah. your critics. George, thanks for coming into the no. studio. Thanks, Alec. Also with us is uh, Lelo Kiyose uh, from First Avenue. Lelo, good to have you in the, on the show today. We're going to talk about... Your recruiting methods. That's right. And thanks for having me, by the way, Alec. Uh, it's, it's so good appreciate to appreciate that. It's so good to see you again. Same and uh, and on a day when markets are uh, under a lot of pressure, I'm sure yes. you'll have your views as right. well. <laughs> but let's stick, uh, kick off as usual with Mr. Shapiro. Dave, uh, I've had someone uh, in our interactive, on the business interactive WhatsApp line say, but David was telling us to buy Sassel just the other day, and now it's down 38%. Oof. <laughs> you know, I, I I I can't remember ever being a wild Sassel bull. Uh, there might have been points where uh, the results came out and the company indicated that things were improving. And if ever I've said buy it, it's probably been on a trading consideration. In mm-hmm. other words, expecting a, a a bounce from a very oversold situation. Um, there have been too many troubles to get excited about it, and, and we've had to watch it. But this kind of slump that we see now is, is, is unprecedented. It's staggering. And, you know, not only are they having troubles with their own operations, but now you've got this oil price slump, which I don't, in terms of numbers, in terms of the prices that we've seen, uh, and I'm, I'm taking experts' views from this, we haven't seen this kind of slump. In fact, oil suffers worst loss since the 1991 Gulf War, and that must be in terms of percentage uh, drops. You know, we might have seen prices lower than this, but this has widespread implications for for the global economy, and uh, it's too early to kind of understand where this is going to lead us, but uh, this is crazy. Individual (laughs) companies as well, as you Mm. said, Sassel down 43% as I look at it on the screen now, almost 90 rand a share. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to be talking to the new CEO of NAMPAC a little later in the program. They're very exposed to Angola and Nigeria, yeah, exactly. which would be heavily hit by this too, presumably. Absolutely. And that's, that's what we don't realize is that where you get a slump in the oil price like that, where you've got African producers and there are quite a few around in, in Africa. Of course, this is their, you know, this is, this is the driver of their economy is going to have widespread uh, issues on their economy. You know, even for South Africa, where what it does do and what the coronavirus has done as well, and it all started in China where uh, there were concerns that Chinese demand for oil would fall. That led the price to drop. That's led to the disagreements in OPEC, which has finally ended or erupted in this in in the share price for uh, sorry in the oil price falling so i mean in, in a way it's it's a consequence of the uh of the virus that we're seeing oil down like this but i mean for for industries even in the u.s and that's why i think u.s markets are taking such a 
pummeling as well. Alec, they've got the fracking industry. Can fracking work at these kind of levels? I don't mm. know. So, you know, those are the consequences not only uh, NAMPAC are going to feel, but a lot of oil services business as well. So it's, 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 it's hurting a lot of people. David, the reason you're not in the studio with us, and I think this has kind of been a first that you haven't made yes. it when you said you're going to be along, is because <laughs> your phone is running, is ringing off the hook. What are you <laughs> telling your clients? Well, you know, from my point of view, uh, I've, learned, uh, I've learned not to panic. I know there's always a saying, if everybody's running for the door, make sure you're the first out. But this has come with such speed, and it's also something that in, in deep down in my stomach says is going to reverse pretty fast. In other words, I think a few months from now, we'll be saying, hell, you know, we spoke about buying. We should have been buying at these kind of levels. Um, I think that there's a lot of panic about the coronavirus. I've got grandchildren in America who are not going to school, even though there hasn't been an, uh, a, a huge outbreak in New York. Um, no principal or no, no one in charge of an organization can take the risk. So we're seeing panic or frenzies that, that, that I've never seen before. But you can't be, you know, people have to be careful. But I think as quick as it comes, you know, I think this is, uh, uh, going to go. There are going to be consequences. I have to protect myself. I have to qualify myself. There are going to be consequences on the global economy. But I think, um, you know, with a little bit of global effort, with everybody putting their heads together, I think this is not a banking crisis like we saw in 08, 09. You know, this can kind of reverse fairly fast. Uncle Warren so Buffett. That's my two penny. That's yeah. my two pennies worth. Uncle Warren Buffett. Well, I suppose mm. Grandpa Warren Buffett would be telling us now: you've kept your powder dry. Mm. This is the time to be unleashing both barrels. I see discoveries at 93 rand this morning. Yeah. I don't know what it's got to do with the coronavirus. We do know that they protected as far as China is concerned. I suppose it could be some some knock-on effect potentially of people getting sick in South Africa, but surely, David, 93 rand? Well, that's, that's my view. You know, that's exactly what I'm saying. I have, I've been trying to take out a chart of, uh, of stocks in South Africa, taking their highest uh, market or capital value and looking where they are now. And the, 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 the kind of destruction that we've seen is just, just absolutely crazy in shares like ArcelorMittal, Tongard, EOH, Huleman, Nampak, PPC, and Victor. You can buy South Africa for nothing. You can really buy it on a, on a fire, fire sale. And although I've been very cautious of the South African economy, um, you know, I think, I think economies are resilient and they have a way of fighting back. And uh, where we talk about those businesses like Tongard, it's a, it's a bricks and mortar company. It's got production facilities, ArcelorMittal, the same thing. If anybody knows about that company, you do, Alec. And, and I'm sure this is not going to, you know, this is not going to be broken up and uh, the steel sold for uh, scrap metal. <laughs> so I think in these kind of situations, you just got to keep your head and, and keep cool. So what are the top five buys for the bold hearts? Yeah, in South Africa. On the market today. I, I think I wouldn't go for Cecil yet. I think we've got to see, but I think the financials must be starting to give value. You know, even f first Rand or uh, Nedbank are at levels that 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 we haven't seen for a long time. Their market caps are down thirty, forty percent, and uh, you know they're pretty steady, well-run organisations. Have got to be there. I'm looking at I would something like City Lodge, for example. It's also 
I don't know enough about NAMPAC, and I'm sorry I'm going to miss the conversation because uh, somewhere down the line as well, they've got to have um, they've they've got to have facilities or certainly operations that must justify where they're trading at these kind of levels. Um, but if I if I was a if, if if I was a betting kind of person and I had the money just to park, I've got to go for things like ArcelorMittal, Tongard, Huliman, NAMPAC. PPC, you know, those kind of shares that are operations, you know, they're manufacturing operations and, and put them aside, put them in a, in, in a hospital type portfolio and somewhere along the line, someone's going to come either buy them out, rescue them, put them into private equity. So there's, you know, for me, there's, there must be deep value there. David Jabiro bringing us up to date. Kello, uh, when last did you see first Rand sitting at 50 rand a share. Well, you know, 2008 was a terrible period uh, for the stock markets around the world, and South Africa was not spared that. Um, but, you know, what I, what I want to say, Alec, is that the stock market does this. The last four or five years of the stock market in South Africa, certainly globally, have made people forget that this is what the stock market does. And a lot of folks have been sucked into really high-flying but cyclically exposed, highly cyclically exposed businesses, mining companies, for instance, and they've done phenomenally well out of that. And so when when a day like this happens, people forget that what you really need to be at all times is protected. Invest in companies whose resonance with the economy and certainly resonance with the consumer is more resilient. You know, always invest um, for compounding growth rather than cyclical growth because cyclical growth today is what's going to lead to some companies probably never coming back. Well, there have been quite a few questions coming in on the interactive line. Is Cecil a buy at 95 Rand? I think David Shapiro says let's wait a little while. I wonder how much longer you're going to have to wait for that one. Down from 200 to under 95 well, an extraordinary day. But also interesting story, uh, it, amongst the small caps has been a company called Exponent. We have the major shareholder in the studio, George Manredi, but one of the uh, bigger critics of uh, Exponent over recent times has been Magnus Haystick, who joins us now on the line. Magnus, we spoke about a month ago about Exponent. It, it was, uh, you were concerned about the way that they'd gone about their business uh, raising money by selling preference shares at high interest rates. As a consequence of that, you were warning people four to five years ago not to support them, and now we've had a um, well. Those those uh, preference shares are no longer being serviced. Uh, maybe just recap quickly, and and we can put your questions to George, who's sitting next to me. Well, we couldn't understand. Uh, uh, good, good good day, Alec. We couldn't understand the business model. It was mock. To, to um, let's say conservative investors as an investment that gives them a very good and a predictable interest rate paid via preference share scheme. And we could never understand where the money was invested. So that was the issue, the first issue. And I think that um, I, th- I think the underlying risks in the underlying investments were glossed over um, and and not explained fully. And, one, and once again, you have a situation where unsophisticated investors who simply just want a, a good investment and a recurring income were, were duped into buying these products 
not fully understanding the underlying risk. And the underlying risks, we tried very hard to find out how the, the, the underlying entities were actually doing. And then five years ago, you know, the, the economy was still fairly strong. But as time went on and the economy started uh, faltering, one, one had to ask questions about, you know, the viability of the underlying companies. Okay, well, that's pretty well put. Uh, George, you've, you've heard what Magnus had to say. What's your response? Yes, uh, thanks, Alec. Uh, thanks for having me here. And uh, Magnus, thank you. Good to meet you. Now, just going straight into your observations uh, four or five years ago, I, I, I would like to say yes, um, I agree with you. Uh, I mean, my group only invested in Exponent um, barely about 18, 24 months ago. And uh, post our investment, we did undertake a, a post-investment due diligence, and we questioned exactly also the model. And uh, what attracted to us was that we were able to say, okay, um, the business is financing itself from expensive debt. Um, and on the asset side, it was running a credit business, which ideally was matching the servicing of those uh, prefs. And most of this uh, credit exposure was into uh, microfinance uh, businesses uh, across Africa, of which South Africa was included. So the margins that were being earned or the interest rates that were being earned was able to service. However, there was a significant concentration risk to one group, which was my bugs. Um, if this was diversified, then yes, we could be talking of a different situation here. So we had a situation where we identified that the failure or success of my bugs would have a strong bearing on exponent. How did you get involved in the first place? Yeah, so, I mean, I built a private equity firm in Zimbabwe after leaving the IFC. I was part of the, uh, an investment professional with the World Bank. Then I built uh, Brainworks in Zimbabwe. And one of the sectors, we were quite diversified across sectors. We were in banking, real estate, uh, tourism. Uh, we identified that we wanted to be in microfinance. But our business model, which I apply all the time, is I invest alongside strong international operating partners or partners who understand uh, a particular sector. So we wanted to get into microfinance. We'd seen an opportunity, and we looked at all the regional players, and in the end, we did uh, choose to partner with MyBugs uh, as our partner in Zimbabwe. So we created GetBug Zimbabwe, which became the best operation across the group, got listed on the Zimbabwe Stock Exchange. It paid dividends in more than, of more than $10 million over six years, and is the biggest microfinance bank in Zimbabwe. So how did you get sucked into Exponent then? Right. So through that, uh, my bucks were my partners in that business, which was quite successful. Then when I listed Brainworks on the Jobex Stock Exchange, I cashed out, and uh, I needed a, a regional platform that I could continue my private equity investment business, not of a Zimbabwean base, but obviously in the biggest uh, you know, uh, you know, capital of business in Africa, which was Jobex. So that's how I got into Exponent. We spoke to Dave van Niekerk also about a month ago, and he was pretty excited about MyBucks, which is listed uh, in Europe, yes. saying that the valuation of MyBucks is huge, and uh, in fact that Exponent's share in MyBucks is worth a multiple of uh, the, the price at which, or the four cents at which the uh, the shares are trading on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. Is the markets don't they get it wrong, but they don't usually get it that wrong. Right. So, so I mean, there is a, a, a key distinction, and it links to the discussion we've been having with uh, David just now, Shapiro. I mean, 
there's one way of looking at businesses based on stock market valuations. In my box, because it was positioned as a tech business um, ever since it was started, we've seen the world over what has happened to tech companies. They become unicorns, yet they've never made a profit. They've lost billions and billions of dollars. This was exactly the case with MyBugs. Uh, ever since it was listed on the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, it has lost um, cumulative profits of about 60 million euros, such that by last year, in its recent financial uh, results, it had negative equity of 45 million euros. I mean, that's close to a billion rand. Okay? But as a tech company, the global investors understand that. Now, I'm a private equity investor. I invest for the medium to long term. I look at the underlying value and we focus on real value because at some point we have to sell these assets and realize the cash for our investors. So I think some of the market players who have had, uh, you know, exuberant, uh, you know, uh, views around valuations based on stock markets, I, I don't look at things like that. Mm -hmm. I look at the substance and the intrinsic value of the business. How are you going to fix this thing because right. now you've got pref shares that have, have not been serviced. Yes. So I think the first critical thing that we needed to do was to exhaust all channels of trying to uh, monetize our in, you know, investment in my, in my bucks which unfortunately had crystallized um, you know, in the last six months of last year. The process started almost 18 months ago and as you can see from our sense announcements there was a, a number of transactions that we had done which build exponent equity investment from zero to pretty much 40%. Uh, and that was all by default because the security on those loans was MyBucks shares. Now, having done that, so we invested in MyBucks not necessarily by design. It was by default of the loans that were secured with MyBucks not uh, you know, being paid back either by MyBucks or indirectly. So we ended up in that position. Now, to me, it's not the first time. My, my business model throughout has been to take over businesses that are struggling, put them through a thorough restructuring, uh, which is what we are doing now. And from last year, we took control of MyBucks. We've changed the governance of MyBucks. We've changed the leadership of MyBucks. We've had about 110 people uh, leave MyBucks. We've shrunk the head office from that level to less than five people. We have closed the tech business side. We've closed the lending business. What we are left with is the only business unit that was profitable, which was the banking arm. So we are in six African countries, uh, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Malawi, Mozambique, and Uganda. That was the profitable business arm of MyBucks. And for the last three years, it made the cumulative profit of 20 million euros. The drag in MyBucks was the head office costs slash tech and the lending businesses. Unfortunately, South Africa was the biggest loss leader in all of that and a cumulative of about 60 million euros was lost out of that, mm. which the net position put MyBucks into a negative equity. What we then did after taking control of MyBucks together with other investors in Europe was to convert our debt into equity to bring the business to positive equity, which is what we completed uh, in December. And now the business is starting to uh, recover, but it's a medium to long-term process. Mm. Um, it's not a short-term issue. But what about the resignation of directors, Richard Connellan, who's, who's highly respected in South Africa, Shaka Sisulu, who, yes. who told me he'd just come on the board, yes. so he didn't. Re it was too confusing for him, and he, he then left. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, whenever you lose uh, directors, it's always unfortunate as a listed company. But, I mean, for me, our, our former chairman, uh, we owe him a lot. He's been great. He's been the founding chairman since 2010. He was just about to uh, complete his 10 of 10 years. 
So it was just by coincidence, and he had another opportunity that was going to be in conflict. Uh, I, I wouldn't say exactly that he left because of this issue. Uh, we had been talking about this. I had just come in, and I needed to learn from him uh, for at least a year or two before taking over. Uh, as, as, as chairman, uh, I was the deputy chairman all along. For Shaka, it's unfortunate. I think we, he came in right in the middle of the storm as we felt it was critical to go through this restructuring. Uh, but we will resource the board uh, with, with other uh, you know, uh, qualified professionals. And uh, you know, we, we believe in strong governance. We believe in strong management. Between Exponent and MyBugs, across all the countries, we've done some major management changes. But what is critical is for us to ensure that we reposition the group's investment portfolio to be able to bring back value for our investors in the preference shares. And those PREF investors, their money hasn't been lost. It's just that the mismatch that was created out of the switch from credit to equity investment has put us in a situation where that to monetize it, we need at least the next couple of years to rework the portfolio. So you've suspended payments on preference shares. You haven't cancelled them. You haven't, yes. haven't defaulted. So, so Yes, exactly. So what we have done is that the structure of the preference shares when it was uh, uh, designed, uh, I think, you know, five or ten years ago, it, in, it included uh, a provision that in the event that the company's portfolio switches and there's a default, if there's a default or a missing of one payment, if the company doesn't remedy that within three months, the prefs will convert into equity, right? So that's the default position that happens. Now, by virtue of MyBax having defaulted on its loans to Exponent, Exponent having to settle with shares in MyBax, I mean, the, it has a cascading effect. Got it. Okay? Yeah. So that's what has happened. Now, we are saying that, fine, yes, there's a default conversion into equity. Uh, however, we want our sh preference shareholders to maintain their preferential right. So, however, we need to amend our memorandum of investment into a new class of prefs that will mimic the cash flow so plan George, for the George, what you're saying, in a nutshell, is just hang in there. Yes. You're going to fix it. Yes. Magnus, what do you say to that? Well, I sincerely hope that uh, George can turn it around because there's quite a lot of money at stake. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad the way he explained it because, in a nutshell, that was exactly... The problem that we had at Braintest, we, we, we simply couldn't work out how the underlying business model works and how it funds the preference shares. And, and, and once again, we have a situation where um, un, unsophisticated retail investors simply look at the yield on their investment, whether it's 10, 11 or 12 and a half percent. And they simply say, well, that's what I'm going for. End of the story. And we've got approached by clients saying, this is fantastic. Can't we get it for them? And we simply, after spending some time, we said we, we can't, we can't recommend it. We just don't know 100% how this model works. And for that reason, we declined to get involved. But however, it was marketed quite extensively in Pretoria seminars, um, advertising on radio Pretoria, as if it's a very uh, a safe alternative to a bank investment or a money market investor. And investment, and that's where the the, the the difference comes in. Investment advisors and and, and the massive scrutiny 
before they recommend any investment. And for that reason, we simply said, you know, nothing against the company, but we're not comfortable with the business model. Well, Magnus Heistek, the chairman of Brenthurst, and uh, also we heard from George Manieri, who's the major shareholder of Exponent. Uh, Fella, you heard, you heard the story. Um, perhaps George is the last hope for those investors and those PREF shareholders. Actually, I wanted to ask a question, George. Are the PREF share uh, holders, are they going to be compensated for time value of money lost? Yes, exactly. So I think what we've done is that um, the new PREF that we're proposing, the terms will include uh, an upside participation at the realization point of the assets as we dispose them in the next couple of years. So there will be uh, upside potential on that. And, and if, for instance, assets that are being disposed in this sort of market don't fetch the values and the prices that you, you wish they could, um, what happens to PREF shareholders? Do they just now resort to equity and lose everything? Or Yeah, so, so I think, um, I mean, um, investing in equity doesn't mean you lose everything. Uh, I think it's just a matter of making sure that when an investment risk crystallizes, I mean, today we're mm. talking of Sasso mm. being down 43%. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean that Sasso is not worth anything. It's the same situation we have where, unfortunately, we believe it's a temporary problem. My bucks has fallen from as high as 15 euros a share to levels below 1 euro per share. Mm. And we happen to have been exposed to that investment. And it's worse when it is European capital markets. So our plan as private equity practitioners now is to say, let's put these assets under a private equity investment ethos mm. rather than a short-term, you know, looking at the stock market. So our, our, our biggest objective is to ensure that we rework these assets for the benefit of the investors and we recover 100% for the investors. But, okay. but in the short term, we don't want to monetize any losses. Well, George, thanks for coming into the studio to settle all of that. I think uh, there's some shareholders who, and PREF holders who've been exposed to you who may be feeling a little better after listening to that. And uh, more strength to all of your efforts. Thank you. Well, we're going off to Somerset West now, and it's a warm welcome to Clem Sunter. Clem, you sent me uh, a piece that you ran, you wrote for News24 about the scenarios of coronavirus. It's fascinating. Um, and you referred back to your book of a couple of, or a few years ago, uh, when you spoke about the different flags that, uh, that we need to watch out for. Flag watching in the book. You've got three scenarios. Uh, South Africa knows you as a scenario planner. Can you just maybe start through those scenarios and, and uh, explain to us which of the three is the one we should be most concerned about? Yeah, um, Alec, uh, three, you know, when I wrote uh, flag watching in 2015, I just said one of the flags is a pandemic. Obviously, I didn't know when it was going to happen. But uh, the increasing probability of a pandemic due to international travel and concentration of people in megacities uh, meant that it, it could happen uh, in the foreseeable future. And uh, as soon as uh, COVID-19 cropped up, I thought of three scenarios to really cover the possibilities. The first is much ado about nothing, which is put forward by quite a few American um, experts that this is going to um, be a normal outbreak of flu. And yes, it's got a higher fatality rate of between 1% and 2% compared to 0.1% for flu uh, of cases.
but uh, it will, in fact, uh, eventually calm down and perhaps disappear like SARS and MERS. So, you know, that's the first scenario, much ado about nothing. Mm. The second one is camel Taken straw, from Shakespeare, no is, doubt, yeah? Uh, uh, from Shakespeare? Yeah, taken from Shakespeare. <laughs> Absolutely. The second one, camel straw, is where the, the virus does not create a, a huge pandemic, but uh, it's sufficiently disruptive to uh, cause a, a, a real crash in the financial markets. And, and the reason that I, I put forward this scenario is that the markets are very high. If you look at the Standard & Poor's price-earnings ratio uh, before the current fall, uh, it was 26, which is, by historical standards, very high. And the world economic growth rate has been slowing down. So it was all really fragile. And uh, the coronavirus uh, would act uh, like the straw on the camel's back. It would actually break it. And, uh, you know, we could see fairly calamitous economic uh, results. We've seen them already in tourism and uh, industries related to uh, conferences and other things where people get together, and uh, yeah, we could we could see another crash in the markets, just like the one we had in 2008, and I call that the camel straw scenario. Mm. The third one is the genuine the genuine thing, which is Spain again, where we have um, another scenario like Spanish flu. Uh, in 1918 to 1920, which killed around 50 to 100 million people then and reduced the world's population by 3 to 5 percent. So this, this would be the serious scenario because it would kill, say, 200 to 300 million people in the world. Um, at the moment, I, I give a low probability to that because it would appear that China has, uh, for the time being, uh, put a lid on, on, on the epidemic there. The number of new cases is very low. So what China's now experiencing would suggest the much ado about nothing because they put in place very extreme measures. Mm. However, it is rising in Europe and America, and one doesn't know whether, as democracies, they will be able to do what, what, what China did to, to isolate whole cities. Um, I know that in Italy they're trying to do that. Um, so the camel straw scenario is, is very much in play, and I, I see that the FTSE 100 this morning uh, fell by 8%. So one must bear that scenario in mind and be diversified in one's portfolio. Mr. Market is certainly going a little bit nuts. Uh, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange has seen Sassel down by 43%. Uh, below 100 rand a share. I don't think it's been there since the well, since it was listed uh, many years ago. So there is definitely a, a a group of people who are one. Well, Spanish. Surely the Spanish scenario claim isn't in play because if there's only a one percent mortality rate, uh, that it it wouldn't appear that that would be a possibility. Or am I misreading it? Well, funnily enough, I, I, I looked up um, the, the, the Spanish flu um, on the internet, and the fatality rate wasn't that high. You know, I, I thought it would be in the sort of range, like Ebola, of 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 seventy percent, but but it wasn't a very high fatality rate. Um, it, it was somewhere in the region of uh, four or five percent. So, you know, it does appear that you can have a virus which is very contagious, um, and which you know. Um, lots of people catch, and that then adds up to a major figure in terms of fatalities. Mm. So, 
you know, you can't you, you can't rule it out altogether because we we don't know the true fatality rate of, of coronavirus. But all all I'm reading would suggest that this may be, um, you know, as I said, a much ado about nothing scenario in terms of. Uh, not having a genuine epidemic. But, and this is the real thing, it is already causing massive disruption in the global economy, and that's why we're seeing the markets go down. I liked the quote that you used in your piece from Louis Pasteur. It is the microbes who will have the last word. It it reminds me of H.G. Wells and War of the Worlds, where the microbes did have the last word. (laughs) Absolutely. And as I said at the end, we need... Uh, foxy politicians and foxy nations to set aside their differences and present a united front um, so that the virus uh, does not have uh, the last word. And I I don't know whether that's possible because we all know how divided the world is in America between the Republicans and the Democrats. Elsewhere, populism is, is, you know, very much to the fore. But this is the moment when people really have to gather come together to have a coordinated plan and businesses obviously have to do everything to protect their uh, staff and workforces and individuals obviously have to protect uh, their families so it it, it certainly raises challenges to to all of us because I don't think that uh, strategic planning conventional strategic planning has really ever built in a response to uh, a viral epidemic. And now is the time to start thinking what are the best things to do. As you say, you know, uh, forewarned is forearmed, and that is absolutely correct, and we have to do it in in the case of this virus. Clem Sunter, scenario planner, giving us uh, his insights on the different flags that we should be watching. Clelo, it's, uh, you're still in the studio and we've just been joined by two other guests. Let's just introduce them quickly and then we'll get into your views on uh, not just coronavirus, but hiring people, which is the reason why we asked you to come in in the first place. Ladies first, uh, it's well, very nice to have Alison Collier here with us from Endeavour. What exactly does Endeavour do? So uh, thanks so much for having me here in the studio today. And Endeavour, um, what Endeavour does, it's an organisation that supports medium-sized entrepreneurs to scale and grow their business. We accelerate the pace of their growth. It's a nice good news story. Uh, not such a good news story, Jabulani Debedu, who's from BDO. Jabulani, we're going to be talking about tourism with you. Yeah, the numbers are looking scary, Alec. Uh, and with the, the, the developing news of the virus, it's, it's, it's really worrisome, not only for South Africa, but for global travel as well. Yeah, we're going to be uh, picking up on both of those. But let's, let's talk to our long-suffering Tlela uh, Guyose, who's been here quite some time. Tlela, just take us through the, the decision that you made in your quarterly report to talk about hiring staff. You know, particularly because, Alec, uh, when you're... Just an emerging asset manager, smallish to medium size, clients expect you to hire people with commerciality, people that are shovel-ready, people with great experience. Um, so all asset managers, emerging ones, uh, medium-sized ones, that's what they try to do. We all try to go out and get people with 10 years' experience, and it never works out. It's a conundrum. Clients think that's what will work, but then it never works out. So because what's, do what's, they leave? or? Well, so this is the reason why we decided to do what we did. We decided we're not going to hire those people anymore. Now, if I could just step back for a little bit and say, in life, 
um, there are games that you don't get to play unless you're all in. Think about the professional um, levels of, of uh, athletics, of sports. Think about um, disciplines uh, such as accounting and, and the law and so on and medicine. Unless you're all in, you don't get to triumph. Um, and as an example, as an example, think about marriage. Uh, if you think you can walk away, then you're not married. You have to be married because there are consequences which stop you from walking away. At least make a thing twice about it, mm -hmm. right? When we hire people as asset managers, we're looking, really looking for marriage. But would you believe that some folks don't opt in completely? You know, what's the reason for that? Why would an experienced person uh, not be all in? What we found is there are various filters that inadvertently or involuntarily prevent an experienced person from being all in. And one of those is their lived um, experience from other companies that they come from. So they come with software already preloaded, whether it's investment philosophy from where they're from or cultural biases or value systems from different companies I've worked with. In South Africa, people tend to work for an average of two or three years in a company, and if someone has 10 years' experience, they come to you with three or four different softwares loaded in them. And so you have your own unique culture, as First Avenue does, which really seeks you to be all in, to opt in. Did you lose a lot of staff? So, so over the years, mm -hmm. we realized that we would, we'd get a guy who'd come in two to three years, four years, and then he'd leave. Get a guy two to three years, four years. You know, and, and part of it is, is you say, well, this is what we're doing. This is what we believe in. These are our organizational values. And he would believe or he or she would believe in those up to a point. And then they opt out as a would in a marriage. So we thought about it and said, what kind of recruitment strategy increases, increases or maximizes the opportunity for an investment professional to be all in? Okay. Because and that's growing your own timber. Growing your own timber. Effectively, yeah. So where did, you, where did you find, how did you find Andrew Cuff to help you? Because Andrew is extremely well known. Right. He blew the whistle way back on Dave King. Right. He specialized outsourcing. And he's done other very bold statements exactly. where he's been, he's been away from the crowd. Right. He sounds like an incredible catch to teach new people coming in. Well, first of all, I mean, I, I've known Andrew since... Uh, his days at Investec Securities, I was in Investec Management, so that's early 2000s, from 2000 onwards. Um, and Andrew is always a guy who's all in. Uh, he's, he, he completely opts in. And he's also spent a lot of time thinking about the numeric aspects of investing from a quantitative, from, from a valuation fundamental standpoint. So we talked to him uh, about, uh, about a year ago, actually, and we brought him in, we brought him in to come in lead our complete training program. We wanted to have someone who's dedicated to training uh, so that you know, the rest of the team stays focused on investments. So we really went back to the old days of having a head of DCF and investment banks in the 90s and a head of training. And then we brought in a cohort of about five young ladies who came straight out of university. Now, what's fascinating about this is um, a lot of people say, oh, you know, there isn't enough talent in the market. Well, you know, universities do do a good job of getting people to pass exams, but they don't do a great job of, people, of, of having people learn how to make connections and things. So when we teach people, we have to teach them how to make connections, how to think laterally, right? So you need a dedicated resource to be able to do that. Now, 
Sadly, by the way, Andrew has just stepped away mm-hmm. from, from our role. He's joined, I think, Stanley Asset Management, and we wish him great, great luck and great uh, success. At You've that. got the process going. And Alison, I'd like for you to come in here, although we're going to talk a little differently about Endeavor. You, mm. you, you work with entrepreneurs. You support entrepreneurs. You wouldn't want entrepreneurs to go out and, and hire the uh, the people who've already, how did you describe them? Well, they have lived experiences from different value systems and, and, corporation and, and, and corporate cultures. Or would you? Yeah, so, um, very interesting question. I think it also depends case by case on the entrepreneur and the business that they're trying to grow and the speed at which they're looking to grow the business. And I mean, we've got entrepreneurs, we work with 26 entrepreneurs here in South Africa and across the globe, thousands. And I want to say the... Um, Entrepreneurs we work with are founder entrepreneurs. So these are guys who've actually founded their own businesses and then established the culture in their teams. Just themselves. like Lelo, actually. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. But one thing that I mean, I would say they, they do do is there is a, a combination of building you know, individuals up from university, training them, but then also for some of their market expansions where they're needing to grow and expand into international markets. Mm. They do typically hire someone who knows that market really well, but there's always someone that's sent from the you know, HQ of that team that goes there. Why? To build the culture. Mm-hmm. All about culture. That's, that's interesting. And, and you've had ex- incredible success if your publicity material is anything to go by. Mm. Those 26 entrepreneurs, what exactly have, have you, how have you helped them? So those 26 entrepreneurs that we work with here in South Africa, specifically, I mean, just to give everyone a sense of the size of these entrepreneurs, it's medium-sized entrepreneurs. So their average revenue is around 200 million rand a year. And it spans from maybe the smaller ones, 50 million, and the larger ones, above 750. So how we help those teams, um, it's really three different ways. One, access to capital. So access to capital here in South Africa, but really these are businesses that are expanding internationally. So it's primarily linking them up with the right VCs in international markets strategically to help them grow. And then the second is on access to those markets. So across Endeavor, we've got a wonderful mentor base, both here in South Africa and internationally. So you get connected up to the right individuals, the business leaders, in those markets where you're looking to expand to, to help you with whatever it is that you're needing to grow your particular business. And then the last Mm. item is talent, which Mm. you're referring to. So connect them to the right individuals so they can build their team. So the connections, which Lelo was talking about a moment ago as well. And Adrian Gore from Discovery, one of our great entrepreneurs in South Africa, he's been quite involved in, in Endeavor over the years. Yes, absolutely. I mean... The one thing that Endeavor, it's, it's really phenomenal, the amount of pro bono mentoring um, that comes from senior business leaders. So the team or the board that initially set Endeavor up in South Africa was led by Adrian Gore, Paul Harris, David Frankel, Isaac Shangwe. And mm. now we're very fortunate on the board. Herman Bosman has taken over from Adrian Gore. Barry Schwarzberg is there from Discovery and a number of the other CEOs from the leading businesses here in South Africa and entrepreneurs. Why do they do it? They do it because they want to, business is a national asset. They want to give back. They want to help the entrepreneurs, the up-and-coming entrepreneurs. They want to help driving the local economy, um, creating jobs. And for me, what's really phenomenal is almost the more senior the mentor or the more senior the business leader, the more freely and actively they give back to the network. It's, it's incredible to see, and it happens here in South Africa and the 34 other markets that we work in. It's really amazing. And how do you pick the entrepreneurs that you support? Oh, so the, how the, well, it's, it's a bit of a self-selection process. So entrepreneurs put up their hands to join Endeavor, and then there's about a six- to nine-month selection process, or more like review, that goes on. So there are various mentors that are chosen to – that actually the entrepreneur really chooses together with us 
to provide them mentoring advice to help them grow their business. Um, and those mentors come in the form of you know, someone with an investment hat on, someone who knows that industry, so from their particular industry, and then an entrepreneur who's successfully grown a business in the new territory that they're expanding to or else um, in that specific same industry. And entrepreneurs, the minimum revenue is about 10 million rand that you need to have when you join Endeavor, but typically the businesses are far bigger, more like 15 million rand. It's industry agnostic. Um, the business needs to have a strong, unique service offering or product proposition that they're looking to take to scale across South Africa or internationally. And then I want to say one of the most important pieces is that the business is founder-led and the, and the founder is really keen to give back to the future generations of entrepreneurs. So once they've formed part of the network and they've successfully expanded their team, then they really freely give back to the entrepreneurial network. More so than 4,000 jobs, 4,500 jobs created in the last yes. three years. I want to say we looked at the numbers earlier on in January and did a, you know, said, we call it our impact data report. And the amount of jobs that these 26 entrepreneurs have generated over the last two years is 4,500. And that growth is a 29% growth. On an annual revenue, like what's happening with their revenue, that's growing at 27%. And what for me is really interesting is these businesses are pr primarily tech businesses. Mm -hmm. So the natural reaction is tech businesses don't create that many jobs. Well, their 29% was the annual increase in jobs versus 27% in annual revenue. So it's really heartwarming to see and the, the amount of effort that goes in to build these businesses. It's phenomenal, and the, but they're, they're led by very strong entrepreneurs. So... No surprise. Anyone in tourism? You know what, actually, now that I was thinking through that when uh, you were talking about tourism, actually right now we don't work with any teams that are in the tourism sector. And, and Jabulani will tell you that's probably not a bad thing. It, 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 it depends. Uh, a lot of the companies that have had a very disruptive uh, impact on, on tourism have been tech, tech companies. And we haven't seen a lot of those coming from South Africa and certainly Africa. But mm. when you look at Airbnb, your mm. online travel agencies, I mean, those have done well over the last uh, 10 years. They've been very disruptive mm. and they've really affected the model of, you know, the, the mainstays of, you know, tourism, uh, accommodation providers, uh, the traditional uh, travel agencies, tour operators, mm. and also other. Mm. <laughs> You're tapping our yeah. table, but that's fine. It doesn't matter. Jabunani is, is, is here because he's from BDO, and BDO has always seemed to be very good spokespeople when it comes to the whole tourism sector. It's, it's almost like an area that, that your firm is focused on. Uh, it's not a firm-wide focus. I, 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 I sit in the advisory division in, in my unit, specifically the tourism specialist unit. We, we track and we consult on tourism. We advise on the tourism industry. So we've, we've done a lot of work on statistics in, in particular, but also on the development side. We do hotel feasibility studies, uh, uh, financial analysis, business cases for, for various infrastructure and, and uh, facilities. In and you know what's going on in tourism right now, and it doesn't look very good, as you said at the top of the uh, when we introduced you. Yes, the numbers are not, are not, are not good, I'm afraid. Uh, we looked at the South African tourism industry performance for 2019, specifically the international tourism arrivals, uh, which unfortunately declined by 2.3% last year, so which is a loss of about 244,000 uh, international tourists. 
when you look at the, the total arrivals, uh, foreign arrivals in South Africa, we divide that into two. It's uh, overseas arrivals and tourists from the African continent. With regards to the tourists from the African continent, they constitute uh, about 74% of uh, total foreign uh, arrivals in South Africa. And the overseas market constitute about uh, actually 26, 26%. The overseas market, what they lack in, in volume, the more than make up in the average spend per foreign uh, tourist, which is, which is fantastic. Uh, but the, the, the African market uh, for South Africa is also very important. Mm. They provide the volume, although the average spend per tourist is lower, they provide the volume. Just to go back to, to the numbers, uh, the uh, 244,000 drop in tourist numbers in 2019. We had uh, 60,000 less uh, tourists coming from the overseas market and about 185,000 less from the African continent. Without getting bogged down in the numbers, what does it mean financially? I was, I was, I was getting to that point. Because when you, when, you, when you look at the 2.3 decline in tourist arrivals, and compared to the 4.2 average growth that Africa as a continent had and the global average of 4%, it effectively means South Africa lost about uh, 683,000 tourists. And if you look, wow. work on an average of uh, 8,700 per, uh, per tourist, it amounts to about six, 6 billion direct spent to the economy. We're getting hit from every side, Lila. Yeah. I mean, this is... Uh you know, this is a this is a culmination of of um, all our behavior of going back to the past nine, ten, twelve years. Uh, you know, we're a society that's stagnating, if not uh, going backwards. You know, and you know, and the the solution, uh, obviously, to humanity is good individual integrity, and and co- societies that recognize that that are predicated on that succeed, and societies that don't stagnate, mm-hmm. we're stagnating. Coronavirus, Jabalani, how is it going to impact us? It's, it's, it's still too early to tell, but the indications are that it's going to have a, a massive impact on, on South African tourism, certainly, and also global tourism. I mean, just by way of an example, the Ebola crisis of 2015 had uh, a net effect of uh, uh, reducing our tourist arrival for, for that year by nearly 7%. So it's we estimate anything from 7 to 15% that we're likely going to lose. Surely that's already there in China, just, just with China not sending anybody or not allowing tourists to come to us. From your figures, it's nearly 100,000 people who come from China every year. Yeah. If they're not coming, that's, that's already a dent. It's certainly a dent, but luckily China doesn't constitute a significant portion of our overseas arrival. Because when you look at the overseas arrival, which is roughly 2.6 uh, per year, I mean, 60% of that is from Europe, and the concern now, and Europe is one of our major source, source uh, uh, region, the concern now with the spread, certainly in Italy, France, Germany, to a less extent in the United Kingdom, is that it's going to as, uh, affect those, those uh, countries that are major uh, source market. So the, the, your clients in tourism have just had a little bit of breathing space with the change in the visas. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they get knocked with coronavirus. If it, uh, if you're in the tourism business, how, how do you actually get them to hang in there? 
It's 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 tough, uh, but I think uh, it's it's important for people not to panic, to keep a sense of perspective because in the South African case and certainly in Africa, it's it's too early to put drastic measures because when you look at all the reported cases, for example, all of them have been uh, imported. We haven't had local transmission yet, so it's important for us to keep a perspective. Treat. Uh, guest inquiries or, or client inquiries on a case-by-case case basis because you don't want uh, to put uh, drastic measures only to have for it to have the, the net effect of you know driving tourists away from not only your business but certainly the the don't, don't panic I think great advice yeah no and uh, I mean I think we people are keeping us informed, and so we must just listen to the experts, hear what they have to say, and yeah, we'll we'll follow what they say. I'm definitely not an expert in viruses, so I'm not going to have a, an opinion. Well, fake news is making a very strong comeback, unfortunately, when it comes to coronavirus. But as Jabalani has been uh, explaining to us there, if you're in the tourism sector, mm, just hang in because this too shall pass. Well, it's a warm welcome to Eric Smits, the new CEO of NAMPAC. Gee, Eric, you've been, well, I don't know if you can call it throwing a hospital pass, but there's lots of focus on you because your predecessor, Andre de Reiter, has now gone to Eskom, and everybody's looking after the, looking into uh, his pre, uh, what he was doing before, and they've looked at NAMPAC and said, but NAMPAC is a negative 10-bagger, it's a company in a lot of trouble, and, 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 and you're the guy who's now stepped up to the plate. You've been with NAMPAC a long time. First of all, thanks, Alex. Absolutely. I've been with NAMPAC for 23 years, so definitely not new to the company, obviously new to the position. And you know Andre? Very well. Mm-hmm. And is he going to save us? I don't think any one person can save <laughs> us, but let me tell you what, uh, Andre is one of the, the best capable people I've ever worked for, so I've got a lot of faith in what he can do for the country. There are many who are saying that, yes, uh, he, he comes across well, he's got wonderful emotional intelligence, but Nampax hasn't, hasn't been a shining success story while he was there. Uh, you've been around for a long time at the company. What's been going on that's, that's really affected the, the value of investors' investments in it? Like I think bef- long before Android joined the company, I think one, one's got to look at the history of the company, and, and that started in the the, the, the more recent history probably started in about 2005. So if you want, I can, I can hmm. take yeah. you a little bit into the, the background. Just move there. that microphone a little bit closer to you if you could, yeah. So I think if you look at uh, subsequent to, to South Africa opening, opening up to the rest of the world, if you look at NAMPAC, historically we had very high market shares in most of the businesses we operate in. So historically, NAMPAC has basically been a combination of many different businesses, and that was really at a time when in South Africa, the only way you could grow was probably to combine different businesses and try and create some economies of scale through management, you know, managing all together and, and lowering your overhead cost. So in a low growth environment, what we started doing, and, and most other companies in South Africa is to say, in this environment, how can we grow? So, first of all, people looked at earning hard currency. Now, that you probably find that's a, a term that hasn't been used for a very long time. But uh, we started looking outside of our borders. So, we started 
First of all, from our beverage can operation, we started uh, exporting big volumes into neighboring territories, and then later on we had a growing market in Angola. So at one point in time, the Angolan government actually came to us and they, they asked us, do we want to invest in a plant in, in Angola? We then started doing a feasibility study. Volumes were going up. We were getting quite dependent on some of those volumes. Um, and then one of our major customers there then put their entire business out to tender. So we were already uh, supplying significant volumes in there. One of our, our big com competitors, Ball Corporation, they were also supplying big volumes in there. And we've actually then gone head-to-head -head against them in a tender to see who will win the business, knowing that the person or the, the company that's not going to get the business will actually lose a substantial portion of their business. We managed to win that tender against them in 2007, and that, that is actually when the investment into the rest of Africa started. So it was quite a drawn-out pr um, process at that point in time to get all the, the approvals in place, etc. The NAMPAC board took a decision right from the start. We're not going to engage in anything that's unethical or that type of thing. So we decided not to take any shortcuts, which in the end uh, cost us a lot of time. So it took a, a couple of years to get all those approvals in place. Eventually the, the plant was constructed. So is that because you often have to bribe people to get things done? Uh, or, or more rapidly. They do get done eventually, but it just takes a long time. I, I think a lot of these eco economies uh, have got a, a reputation for that type of thing. We took a very deliberate decision. We're not going to engage into any of that. And I think um, that's definitely a decision that uh, worked out well for us, where we find a lot of um, other smaller companies or other players decided to take shortcuts, and eventually they paid a heavy price. Mm -hmm. We it's like I said, we decided not to do so. It took us longer, but in the end, when we started operating, we were left alone. So I think in the end, it was a, a very good decision. So of the NAMPAC business today, how much is in South Africa and in the rest of Africa, and particularly given what's happened to the oil price in the past 24 or 48 hours in Angola and Nigeria, who were so heavily dependent on well, those economies, heavily dependent on oil? Yeah, so, so obviously originally virtually all our business came from South Africa. Over time, the strategy of moving into the rest of Africa, uh, we diversified our portfolio and as of uh, 2019, 70% of our trading income came from the rest of Africa. I have to just clarify that our trading income excludes some of the abnormal items. So that is, that is more looking at the, the actual underlying business that does not necessarily show the final rents and cents that's gone into the... Now that uh, abnormal account. items is something that we saw Anne Crotty write about it in the Financial Mail. We've got Chris Logan who's going to come on and talk about something different, also criticizing you on that, uh, in that these items have been recurring on the, uh, on the income statement, and yet they're still made into the abnormal column. You're an accountant. You're a chartered accountant. What's going on here? I think let's first of all look at why they're not included in trading income. Trading income is meant to reflect the underlying trading of the business. When you started looking at repatriation of funds, that type of thing, that is not what we classify as normal trading, and hence anything that is abnormal to the normal trading conditions, we, we classify it as abnormals. What we try and do then as well is we make sure we give full disclosure to the users of financial instruments 
Uh, we also have a de clearly defined what we term as trading income, so that if anybody disagrees with a specific definition, we give all the information and, and the user can then make up his own mind as to what is abnormal and what not. But Eric, the share price is just spiraling downwards. Uh, you've got big debt. Uh, getting back to what I, how I started, hospital pass, it looks like it to outsiders. I, I certainly can see how it can look like that from the outside, but I, I think maybe if I can continue, after we made the initial investments into Africa, we actually had massive success. So if you look at the, the execution of those first projects, very well executed and the profitability actually showed. Thereafter, we made another investment, uh, quite a big investment in Nigeria, and if you look at the, the sentiment from the market, the share price shot up, so our profitability increased as a result coming from the rest of Africa, and it was clearly at that point in time, given the valuable information um, available at the time, that it was the right thing to do. The, the market applauded us for that strategy. The, the share price increased from roughly 15 rand a share to, I think it uh, reached a height of about 45 rand a share, but then something came from the outside which uh, we would like to say was uh, unforeseeable and uncontrollable. So the collapse of the oil price reversed a lot of the good fortunes of NAMPAC. At that point in time, there was not much we can do about it because you can't go and uplift those, uh, those investments. So although they were really successful investments up to that point in time, the whole of NAMPAC's uh, future then changed dramatically. So instead of a going into a, a growing situation, we were really then in a situation where we had to see how, we, how can we protect Shell the wealth. And that's roughly the time when Andre uh, came in. In, in fact, he, I think he came in about 2014, which is exactly the time when the, the oil price collapsed. So through his tenure, most of what he had to do was to see how do you protect uh, further losses to, to shareholders. It looks like you've got the same situation you have to deal with, with the way the oil price go down. Would you believe $28 over the weekend? Absolutely. So, so this is not the first time this has happened. I think uh, if you recall during the, the financial crisis in 2008, the oil price also collapsed. It recovered very quickly, and a lot of that was driven by the growing demand for oil from, from China. Of course, it happened again in 2014, but that was for a very different reason. That was probably due to the fact that you had new technology, so uh, the, the, the fracking in, in North America, uh, shale gas, etc., uh, gave a, a, an alternative to oil, and I think that's changed the, the long-term prospect for oil uh, to a certain extent. So um, I think a lot of the, the recent uh, slump we know is, is probably related to the coronavirus and, and sort of a, a disagreement between OPEC and and some other countries, so I think uh, we'll have to wait and see what's going to happen from here, but at the moment definitely a, a challenging situation to manage through. How do, you, how do you manage through it? Have you got the reserves to keep going uh, with the oil price at these levels? I think that the situation today and, and what we faced uh, a couple of years ago is very different. So um, back then, we had to had to fund these economies to keep the the um, our raw material going, our operations. So the, these economies has uh, been through similar situation now for quite some time. So I think we've learned how to adapt. We scale back um, to the point that that we need to. 
the, the mechanisms in country are very different from what it was back then. I think it's, it's fair to say that in both Angola and Nigeria, we're now closer to uh, a free-floating uh, currency where before I think it's probably fair to say it was a lot more managed. So we, we've got quite confident that we do not need to uh, invest further money into these economies. Um, for instance, in uh, Nigeria at the moment, there's no issue getting funds out of the country. The same for Angola. But we will have to manage the situation as it's un unfolding, and uh, we'll have to react to the situation at the time. Impact was always a favorite amongst value investors because you had all these assets and you were trading at a, 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 a discount to the value of the assets, even more so today. Are you able to give us some visibility about when you return to profitability, your, your interim results showed a, a substantial loss. And again, what Shield is really interested in nowadays is, is dividend streams. Yeah, so I, I think if you go historically, NAMPAC had quite a rich dividend policy. And I think if you look at it in retrospect now, I think we all agree it's been too rich. Hence the reason why we cut it back, especially since we, we were starting to to deliver so much of our profits out of these economies that had uh, restricted currency flows at the time. So clearly that's put quite a, quite a heavy burden on our balance sheet and we will only return to uh, putting out a dividend once we know that we can service our debt properly, etc. We made it clear at our, our year-end results that the, uh, the first priority right now is to pay down some of our debt and specifically the US dollar denominated debt. Hmm. Tell us a bit about yourself. Apart from being a chartered accountant who studied here and internationally, you've, you've been with NAMPAC uh, for quite some time. Were you intimately involved with the uh, Africa expansion? Yes, so the, b both the, the investment into Angola and Nigeria happened under my watch. So I think uh, different from some of my predecessors, I can't blame this on anybody else. I was uh, very involved in those at the time. Um, and I must be honest, I'm quite proud of what we achieved. Of course, if you look at the share price right now, it, it tells a very different story, uh, different fortunes. I think, uh, obviously, hindsight is 2020 uh, 20 vision. But in fairness, I think if, if you had to put those same investments in front of a board today, a responsible board, given the information at the time, I think they would have made, or today, they'll make exactly the same decision. So... I think if you look at uh, NAMPAC over the years, clearly we haven't done everything well over its, uh, its entire history. We've made some, some mistakes over, it, uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, my personal motto, I'll say, if you're going to fail, fail forward. Make sure you learn from it, and that's certainly what we're going to try and do. Angola is an interesting country right now. Not many South Africans are aware of the massive privatization program that's, that the new president is, is enacting there, also attacking corruption by exposing the, the former president's daughter and her shenanigans. Is this something, when you look five to ten years ahead, that, that, uh, and with a normalized oil price, that, that could be a jewel in the NAMPAC crown? Alec, definitely. If you, if you look at our strategy going forward, and clearly we can't discuss this in detail until we've uh, spoken and, and disclosed more to the market about it, but clearly NAMPAC has got a very good footprint in, footprint in Africa right now. Yes, it's a challenging market, but I think over time that will really put us in a good position once those economies start recovering again. 
If you look at Angola, it was interesting. I, I visited Angola from about 2004, and it was remarkable how every time you fly in, you could see the new investment in infrastructure and how that's uplifted that country. Of course, they often have gone into a slump again. And now recent, I think it's very brave of the new president to tackle corruption in the way he's doing. I think it's commendable. And there's clearly a, a new sort of feeling on the ground that, that he's serious about it. And I think for, for any economy anywhere in the world, and specifically in Africa, I think it's fantastic to see this type of leadership coming through. Unfortunately, the oil price is not playing ball, but as you say, it's, it, it could normalize, it should normalize one day. Yes, uh, listen, we, we've obviously put a, a big bet on Africa. I think initially it paid off. Later now with the collapse in the oil price, I think one can, can look at it differently. Um, we are invested there right now. Does it mean we're going to invest heavily further? I don't think there's a need. I think we've got a good footprint. So I think it's probably time that uh, when, we, when the time comes and we need to look at other investment destinations, there's probably other places we also need to consider. Chris Logan is going to be talking to us about something else. But, uh, Chris, I know you've done a lot of work on, on NAMPAC. Let's not go into much detail here. Are you, are you comfortable that you've been given new information that you may have to reassess? Yes, no, thanks, Alec. I think Eric gave some interesting context to the investments in Angola and Nigeria. And um, I was particularly interested in his comments that they beat ball uh, in a tender for the Angolan business. Um, because the advantage that a big company like Ball would bring to the party and in going into something like Angola is its scale, where the Angolan business would have been probably under a percent. So they would have been able to ride out this volatility. But I certainly think Eric's given some great context in a rapidly developing story, and I'd encourage him to do more of it. It's very good. Well, Chris Logan has been beating a drum on something that we've been busy with on BizNews, uh, or rather we published something on BizNews a little while ago, which really is a fascinating concept. The concept that was raised first by the former uh, head of the, uh, well, a couple of members of the Ministerial Council on Energy uh, for the President and the former head of the Energy Centre at the CSIR, uh, as well as his uh, his colleague, um, who came from the Wind Energy Association. We're talking here about Dr. Tobias Bischof Nimps and Johan van der Berg. I know we published this story on Business News, uh, Business News two years ago, Chris. Uh, it's, it's something that now seems to be coming back into the vogue. You did have dinner with the two of them, Tobias and Johan. The whole story is to do with selling off Eskom coal-fired power stations. Did they impress you? Totally, Alec. Thanks a lot. I, I just had uh, dinner with Tobias, but I've also chatted to Johan quite extensively. And I think the thing that first caught my eye was that their ideas were put forward by National Treasury in their paper of August 2019, which was on economic transformation, inclusive growth, and competitiveness. And in that paper... Um, National Treasury suggested that Eskom should sell off 
it's coal power stations through a series of auctions and possibly raise 450 billion rand. Which would liquidate the debt that, uh, that Eskom is sitting on at the moment and, and presumably take away the millstone from taxpayers. Absolutely. It would be a total game changer for not just Eskom but for South Africa um, because it's not just getting rid of the debt. That, that's obviously a big plus. I, I believe that they just announced a tender on one of the big coal power stations. You'd stable for junk rating. But apart from the debt, it, as the various proponents have set out, it would also improve the operational performance of the various coal power stations because once put in private hands, that operational performance would be for the account of the new owners. Um, and there's nothing that really focuses the mind than if your pocket is involved there. But there are 15 of these, uh, Chris, uh, coal-fired power stations, five of which shouldn't really be in operation anymore. They're old. They should be decommissioned. What would happen to those five? Well, Tobias and, and Johan, and interestingly enough, Greenpeace has put out a 68-page report on transforming Eskom. They also have strongly endorsed and built on this idea of selling off the coal power stations. And obviously Greenpeace has got great credentials. But regarding your specific question, the very old coal power stations should be decommissioned according to all the people who've looked at it properly because they're very costly to run. And, um, you know, they're also a threat to the environment. And they've come to the end of their natural life. So they should be decommissioned. It's 15 of them that Tobias and Johan um, classified, you know, which still have useful lives. Which mm. So the ones who would go was Camden, Hendrina, Komati, Grootvlei, Arnott. We understand that. I was, it was very interesting looking at the individual amounts involved with the rest of them uh, that are left. Obviously, Kusili and Medupi, the biggest. But yes. uh, Madupi 169 billion and Kusili 105 billion, but but a, a raft of others in there as well. Chris, how realistic are these figures? Why would someone come and buy Madupi, for instance, for nearly 170 billion rand if all we hear from it is is troubles and troubles? Well, the beauty of this idea, in essence, you're not so much as buying a coal power station; you're buying a revenue stream which is determined by the power purchase agreement that would be put in place by Eskim and the new owners. So it's, it's a lot like a property with, say, a 20-year lease. To a large degree, the value is determined by the lease rather than the underlying property. So the idea is that these coal power stations are sold off with a power purchase agreement to buy so much power at such and such a rate over so many years. So that's where the value comes from, the, the bulk of the value. And if you look at what they've done, they've given a greater margin to Madupi and Kusili so that the debt thereon could be um, paid off. So there'd be a bigger price realized and the debt could be paid off. It sounds a bit like the independent power producer programs for renewables where people bid uh, to, to have a, a supply that they could give to Eskom 
uh, at a certain price, and then if they get that in place, then they go and build the facility. Exactly, but how you'd be auctioning off existing assets, getting in cash inflow, which the country and Eskom desperately needs as we teeter on the edge of junk, and then deriving the benefit from you know, greater skills brought to bear at the underlying coal power stations. You know, it, it's likely if this was done, it would attract expertise from around the globe. And so there are really a number of benefits. So, um, so far, uh, what has the reaction been like from government? It's one thing for Treasury to propose it, but there's ideological issues that are involved here too. Correct. So... Treasury put these ideas forward in uh, July 2019. And then Cyril Ramaphosa, our president, actually shot them down <laughs> somewhat when he visited Madupi and he said, you know, this is the family silver and we're we ne never going to sell it. But since then, a lot has changed. You know, we had the tremendous load shedding crisis in December. Um, and we're now seeing a moving dynamic. Ramaphosa himself was quoted in the paper last week as saying, our thinking has not remained static. And he's not talking about selling off the very old coal power stations. So although that's not what the authors envisaged, it's a, it's a dramatic shift and it's a powerful shift. It's a starting point. Uh, I'm going to just ask Eric, uh, Eric Smuts, who worked very closely with Andre Dorato, what, what he thinks about this. Do you think Andre is the kind of person, you know him well, that would, uh, that would see upside in this? Look, I think it would be hard for me to, to uh, express what Andre's thoughts would be. I can sort of give my own view on it. Um, I think it is clearly in the country's interest to, to privatize some of these assets to give it into hands that can manage it more effectively. I think the question is, what will a buyer be prepared to pay for these assets? Uh, if, if you're going to invest in an asset like that, if you could build your own, you will design it, you will make sure it is to spec from the start. To take over a different asset that you know is underperforming, I think that the valuation of that could be very interesting and uh, might actually give the answer here. So that would be the challenge, Chris. What would people be, would they be prepared to pay the figures that uh, have been put on the table by Tobias and Johan? Yes, well, obviously there are a set of assumptions around that, but as we say, the major determinant would be the power purchase agreement, being you know the rate at which Eskom would buy power from those uh, coal power stations, um, and the duration of that contract. But obviously. Regarding, I think, you know, what Eric was getting at, there would need to be quite a thorough due diligence. And perhaps the best way would be to, to start off, which is what Tobias and Johan recommended, with not the big ones first, you know, which we know have got design flaws, but some of the old ones, which are fine, you know, not the very old ones, and it would be a lot simpler. And they also recommending a trial and Error process to get kick started. 
So you could you could get Mutler, say at thirteen billion, Duva at eighteen billion, Tutuka, they've got a figure there of twenty seven billion. These are these are big assets and uh, and an exciting uh, idea that is being floated now by uh, people looking for solutions. It has as well been uh, I won't say given the thumbs up by the president, but certainly he's starting to look at it as Chris mentioned. Uh Maposa no longer saying that our thinking is no longer static. Well this has been the latest episode of Rational Radio. Look forward to being back in your company again next week. Thanks for listening. From Alec Hogg, cheerio.